1 Samuel 15 is a tricky bit of the Bible. It's one of those passages that you almost wish wasn't in the Bible. You know, the passage starts with Samuel relaying the word of the Lord to Saul, saying along the lines of, I will punish the Amak. Uh, I keep getting this word wrong, I, and I, so it might get pronounced multiple ways. So just go with me, okay? Um, Amamalakites. Amamakites. What those people? Yeah, okay. I've, do you know when a word just doesn't get in your head and you keep getting it wrong? Anyway, right. I'm going to punish them for what they did to Israel. Bring total destruction upon them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. So what's God's big issue with the Amalekites? Well, we have to go back to Exodus 17 for that. And Israel had just been released from slavery in Egypt. And as a recently released people, they were weary, they were tired, they were worn out. And as they walked through the desert, the Amalekites, see, I struggle, attacked from the rear. They attacked them from the back, targeting the weakest, the most frail, the most vulnerable. And not only that, it wasn't simply a callous attack on the weak, but it showed that they opposed God's plan for his world. They opposed what God wanted to do with, with Israel, which was redeem the whole of creation. And Israel's God isn't going to stand by and let his plans be derailed by a wicked people. No. And he's going to demand justice for their attack on the weak and vulnerable. And so we're told in Deuteronomy 25 that he will blot them out. And in Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, that moment has come. God's justice will be enacted. Saul will lead his army against them and destroy them completely. God's justice will be brought to bear and a violent immoral threat against his plan for the world will be stopped once and for all. Now, despite that historical framing of what's going on, it still remains an uncomfortable passage. So it's important to remember that as we read these words, that these words are a command from the God who is described as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. He gives everyone every single possible chance, but ultimately, he is just, and he will bring his justice to bear on this world. And for the Amalekites, that is Saul's army. We don't have time tonight to go further into that question because actually the passage doesn't focus on the morals of war. It actually has a different focus, and that is of obedience. A number of years ago, I spent three months and one day in South Africa. I had been on a mission trip, and uh, towards the end of my stay, I realized that my visa ran out one day before I flew home. 
it was a three-month visa. So I asked, what should I do? And everyone said, you need to go to the immigration office and see what they suggest. So I went there, and, and the officer said, well, you need to buy a new visa for three months, and it's going to cost you 70 quid. Here's the form. Fill it out. So I took the form, and I, I obediently filled it out. And then as I walked towards the cash point, I thought, surely it's only 24 hours, right? It's only 24 hours. You know, no, it's 12, 70 quid is a lot for... 24 hours, and surely they're not going to enforce the letter of the law for 24 measly hours, are they? You know, i I just not going to do it. So I didn't return with the money and the form. I, I filled it in. I had a completed visa form, but I did not return it to the, visa, to the immigration office. And so the day came for me to fly home, and I got to the uh, counter and handed over my passport and the response was, why have you outstayed your visa? Immediately, airport police came over and took me and bundled me into this dark little office to interrogate me. And at this point, I had wished that I hadn't packed all my underwear in the hold luggage. I, I pleaded my case. I have obeyed. I did fill out the form but it was only 24 hours, and I thought you wouldn't really mind about 24 hours. Look, I have tried to obey the law. I'm leaving within a day. You know, surely it's going to be okay. Surely I'm okay with this. Surely you're okay. But they had none of it. I was handed an extortionate fine, which I've not yet paid, because I have to pay it when I go back in. Um, and they kept me in this... Yeah, I know, it's amazing. Uh, they kept me in this detention room until my flight was ready to depart. And if you're wondering, there is no duty-free, there's no coffee, there's no nothing in the detention area of Johannesburg Airport. It, there's nothing. It's very dull. To be honest, I've had better days. It, I've had days that have gone better for me. The problem was, I had only been partially obedient. I had only obeyed part of the rules. And partial obedience is no obedience at all. I'm sure we have all found ourselves in situations where we have not fully obeyed at something and we've been caught out, perhaps less dramatically than I did. It is this issue of partial obedience that is at the heart of our passage this evening. Samuel meets Saul with a message, verse 1, saying, listen to the message from the Lord. Now, when Samuel invites Saul to listen, listen doesn't mean just hear it. It means listen and then obey. Hear and go and do. Go and destroy the Amalekites people. Okay? And so Saul faithfully gathers his troops, leads them into battle, and they win resoundingly. They destroy their, that people, but not all is well. Samuel has been up all night crying out because God has spoken to him, saying that I regret having made Saul king because he has turned away from God and not carried out his instructions. 
So the next morning, Samuel gets up early and goes to confront Saul, ironically finding him at Gilgal, which is the place where Saul was confirmed as king. Saul welcomes Samuel, insisting that he has listened, that he has been faithful, that he's obeyed the instructions that God has given. But Samuel uses his ears and listens. And in the background, he can hear cattle and he can hear sheep. And Saul is forced to admit that actually they had spared the best of the cattle and the sheep. But note Saul's response. It's not, I spared. It's, they spared. He points the finger at his generals. He points it at the people saying, they spared. But we totally destroyed them. Saul distances himself from the sparing, but includes himself in the totally destroying. Samuel reminds Saul that as king, he is responsible for his people. He's responsible for them, and he cannot separate himself from their actions so easily. And then he's asked, why have you disobeyed the Lord? Why? Again, Saul defends himself, verse 20. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. But with the same breath, he then condemns himself. As he says, and brought back Agag, their king. He wasn't supposed to bring Agag back like some trophy. But that's exactly what he has done. Samuel's response reveals the heart of the issue. Verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in an obedience in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. The Lord delights in full obedience and everything, anything other than full obedience is sinful rebellion. It is... This, that's at the heart of the passage, it's the heart of Saul's failure. He settled for partial obedience. Yes, he went out with his army to destroy them. Yes, he did some of what God said and asked him to do, but he did not do it all. He spared the cattle. He spared King Agag, bringing him back like some trophy. It was like he had arrived at the airport with a completed visa form that hadn't been paid for. Saul had failed to listen and obey. Lord, the Lord didn't want nice sacrifices, religious sacrifices. He wanted obedience from his king and from his people. And for God, that would not be tolerated by, for his king. That is not okay. And Saul would be judged and deemed unfit for purpose. He was guilty of disobedience. And for that, he would be rejected as king. And someone else would take his place. I think it's important to note that it is Saul as king who is rejected and not Saul the man that has been rejected here in the passage. Saul can no longer serve God's intentions for Israel 
And at the end of the chapter, in verse 35, we hear that, that, that chilling phrase, that the Lord grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, this whole section of 1 Samuel, chapters 13 to 15, have detailed kind of Israel's leadership under Saul. And this idea of kingship that the people longed for, the people wanted a king so they could be like every other nation. And chapters 13 to 15 show that that kingship has come up well short. It's failed to make the mark. It's failed woefully. It has has been, at best, partially obedient, which is no obedience at all. And that's simply not okay for God or for his people. And so the future of Israel is at at stake. A new course is required, and Saul must be replaced with someone who will do the will of God, who will be faithful, who will obey the king of kings. And this time, God would choose their king. And the passage leaves us, verse 29, with God making an unwavering promise to Saul's successor, who we will later find out is, would be a shepherd boy called David, a man after God's own heart. The story of Saul's downfall as king And in fact, the whole Old Testament teaches us the necessity, the absolute necessity of obedience to God. And we know, don't we, that obedience is key to the Christian life. It's key to living well. God desires an obedient people and it's it's an aspect that we try to live out in our lives. Yet that list of shoulds weighs heavy on us from time to time. I should pray more. I should read my Bible more. I should, 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 should. It weighs down on us. And if you're anything like me, you have so many unfulfilled shoulds. And perhaps we imagine God looking down on us like a disappointed father, disappointed at our failure to be obedient. Yet, No matter how hard we try, we just can't manage more than partial obedience. And perhaps we've given up. Perhaps we've said, okay, I'll just settle for that partial obedience. I'll I'll keep those areas that I don't really want you anywhere near of my life, God, at at harm's length from you. I'm just going to settle with giving you these little bits. Are we just like Saul? Have we only made it to the immigration office and failed to complete the task? Are we destined for the airport detention room? Well, amazingly, because of Jesus, that's not how obedience works. All those shoulds, all those commands that we can't obey, Jesus has done. He has fulfilled them all, every single one of them. Even to the point of death on the cross. Why? Because we can't. Because we can't, he has done it for us. And as we trust in him, we are credited with his perfect obedience. 
We are judged not guilty of disobedience, but right with God. And we are left with nothing else to prove. And this is the key to an obedient life. As those with nothing left to prove, God's commands don't need to weigh down heavy on us, all those shoulds. But our words of a loving father to his children, words that offer fullness of life, that offer joy, that offer freedom. The invitation to obedience is born out of, grown deeper and made perfect in relationship with Jesus. It is as God's children in relationship with him, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we are able to be obedient to him. And through that, we experience the joy and life of obedience. We are not destined for the airport detention room. Jesus has been there for us. Instead, he has given us his very own visa and invites us to join him in the first class lounge. Where in our lives tonight might God be calling us into deeper relationship with him, into greater obedience to him? Where are those areas in our lives that we've had off limits to him, that we said you can't, you're not invited into them? That he's saying, maybe just let your guard down and let me in. Or what about those unhelpful habits that we've picked up? The stuff that we spend too much time or too much money on. What about those areas in our lives where God is inviting us to greater intimacy? In prayer, reading his word, spending time with him. We're reminded in this passage that God loves obedience. God loves an obedient people and he longs for us to know the joy and the freedom of being obedient, of being in relationship with him. So may we know what it means to be obedient people this week, this year, in our lives. Let's pray together.